I like reading books by old dead guys. I commend them to you, especially at least 500 years old. If you need titles, Wynn can help you with that. A.W. Tozer wrote this. What comes into your minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Isn't that interesting? Because, he says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, he writes. When, what comes into your mind when you think about God? How do we conceive of God? How do we understand God? Well, there are a couple of ways. One is by way of analogy. Most often, he is a, a much better version of dad. We sometimes start with dad and we think, yeah, but God's just way better. And that's true, he is way better. Um, there is some benefit to thinking about God this way. I mean, he has revealed himself to us as father. But dads have flaws. Some of us are significantly flawed. And that constrains our view of God. It warps our view of God. Another way to conceive of God is, is nature. We look out on the vastness of the oceans or the mountains, and we think of God as being vast, creative, powerful, majestic, There's also benefit in this, as the psalmist says, right? The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Yet this is also incomplete. We cannot reason from the heavens and the sky to the Trinitarian Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can know our smallness and evil, but not God's mercy and forgiveness. That's not found in nature. What is revealed in creation, Paul tells us, is a compelling witness of God. But there is much, much more. Since our minds, by nature, don't rightly think about God, we must must study him in the Bible. Charles Spurgeon, Baptist preacher in England, wrote this, or he preached this in 1855, quote, he who thinks often of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of a man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Sounds kind of strange to investigate the great subject of the deity, perhaps. Seems lofty or philosophical or academic, We might say, can't we just study the Bible to figure out how to be better sons and daughters and husbands and wives and just better people? That would would be no problem if we didn't have souls, if we were just material, just flesh and bone, just making our way. Indeed, with the rise of a whole host of people who have no interest in God, who when asked to, to identify their religion, they check the box that says none. With the rise of this group, we see a rise in this rigid focus on the here and now, as if the soul is irrelevant. But in this life, the life of the soul should be our most important concern. The Apostle Paul said this to Timothy, train yourself in godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
Godliness is what happens when, when the soul is full of God. The word itself, when, when someone is described as godly, he or she is godlike. To obey Paul's command to train ourselves for godliness is to be godlike, to be Christ-like. Therefore, we must study God. And so we're back to Spurgeon's words. That to expand our souls means we investigate God. Our text for today is a study of God. The other parables we've considered have unpacked different aspects of the kingdom of heaven and how we're to live in that kingdom rather than uh, living in the world. Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, that's our text, a familiar one. It's the story of the prodigals and their father. It's a story about God specifically focuses on the love of God. In John's first letter, we read this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Tozer again says that here, John is simply stating a fact. God is love. He isn't trying to say that love is the sum of who God is, for that would be terribly incomplete. J.I. Packer, I told you, I told you. Old dead guys, J.I. Packer, he's not that old. He wrote this in his book, Knowing God. Beloved, if you don't own that book, Knowing God, I suggest you do. He writes this, quote, God is love, means that his love finds expression in everything that he says and does. Every single thing that happens to us expresses God's love to us and comes to us for the furthering of God's purposes for us. In this way, we make room for the various expressions of God's love. This parable has three characters, one unifying character, the father, and then two sons. In the father's conduct with his two sons, we see three aspects of the father's love. Since Jesus is teaching about God here, we see three aspects of God's love. The text answers this question. What is the love of God like? What is the love of God like? We'll see three things here. Number one, it is wise towards us. It's watching us, secondly, and it's working for us. The love of God is wise towards us. It's watching for us, and it is working for us. That's where we're headed. Let's read Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. And he, that is Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said, son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for this word. Wow. The picture of love. Lord, you know that I'm feeling grossly inadequate to express the depth of the love of God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister to us. You would open our minds to understand more deeply the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in order to grow our souls, we need to recognize the love of God is wise towards us. That's our first point. This parable is the third in a group of three. Or we could say it's part three of a single large parable that started in verse one. Look at verse one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. The Lord tells the parable of the lost sheep. And without any commentary, he rolls next into the parable of the lost coin. And without any commentary, into the parable of the lost sons. There's two things about these three parables that I want to point out. Number one, these parables aren't about evangelism, strictly speaking. They are about God's saving love. He tells them to two groups of people with two different purposes. Group number one, the tax collectors and sinners. For them, these parables explain there is no lostness that cannot be restored. No sin that puts a person beyond the reach of the love of God. Group number two, the Pharisees and the scribes. For them, these parables explain that the basis of God's love is God. It's not found in anything in us or done by us. The reason God loves is what John said. God is love. The second thing about these three parables is that they all contain several themes. Each begins with something valuable that's been lost. A sheep, a coin, two sons. Each shows sacrificial actions. The shepherd goes to get the sheep. The woman searches for the coin. The father watches and works for his sons. There is always a found scene. When the shepherd finds the sheep, the woman finds the coin, the father finds his sons. God's love is compelling. It works every time. 
There's a celebration, lastly, at the end of the searches because what was lost has been found, and that is the cause of great joy. Now, let's drill into our parable a little bit. The first point is that the love of God is wise towards us. Look at verse 11. And Jesus said, a man had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, you must give me of the property that belongs to me. And the father divided the living between them. As I said, Jesus puts another parable, a hypothetical before the crowd. A man and two sons. The sons appear to be young because they're single, perhaps late teens. The younger one comes to the father and demands his share of what he would inherit upon the father's death. This was very irregular, terribly insulting, and even presumptuous. Upon the father's death, the younger son would be entitled to a third of the father's holdings. The older son gets more. He wants the value of it now. With this action, effectively, the son is severing ties to his family. He is preparing to leave and not look back. He's going to walk away from his life and family and not return. That, that this is his intention is seen in verse 19 in what he decided to say to his father upon his return to treat him not as a son but a hireling. The son thinks he knows what's best for him And that includes demanding his share of the inheritance and leaving. So what's the father's response? Father divided the living between them. Luke makes it clear the son requests his portion of what his father's life will, of his father's life and will leave him. And the father just gave it to him. No pushback, no refusal, no citation of son, that's not how we do things these days. He just gave in to the boy's request. If you're a parent of older children, you might have predicted what happened next. Look at verse 13. Keep in mind, this is a young man. And after not many days, the younger son gathered all that he had and went on a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in wasteful living. Clearly, it was the intent of the younger son to leave. And he does so very shortly after he gets the value of his inheritance. The boy went past the borders of Israel into Gentile lands. The far country is a reference to that, as are the pigs in the story. While he was there, he squandered what he received from his father in in wasteful living. Uh, The ESV uses the word reckless or wild. This term in the Old Testament means debauchery. Proverbs 28 verse 7 is true of this young man. It reads, the one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. The older son highlights this when he asserts to the father, this this son of yours devoured your property with prostitutes. Look at verse 14. When he spent all that he had, there was a famine throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to herd pigs, and he was longing to be filled with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Well, having neither wisdom nor connections, the son spent all that he had and exposed himself to poverty and danger. To make matters worse, a severe famine hit the land. He sought out and was hired by a Gentile who sent him to feed pigs. He's in a Gentile land. He's working for Gentiles. He's doing work that no Jew would ever do. Indeed, it violated God's law for him to do this. Leviticus 11, verse 7. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and it's cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Pigs were universally despised and avoided at all costs. 
To come into contact with a pig meant you had to go through a, a purification process to, to worship the Lord. And the pigs were better fed than he was. He longed to eat what they were eating. This part of the story is a sad testimony to what can happen when the young believe they have more wisdom than they actually do. And if the younger son stands in for all the children of God, what can happen to us if we choose the things of this world over the things of the kingdom of heaven and we live for them? Spiritual poverty. But those conclusions, supportable from other texts, aren't the point here. Even though Jesus is talking about the son and describing his plight, the father is a more significant figure. The reality is, it was the father's willingness to give the son his inheritance that had facilitated all of this. In fact, it was the father's love that drove him to withstand his son's arrogant presumption and, and endure the public shame that he would, ha- would have had from the townspeople to give the son what he requested. But he loved his son, and he gave him what he wanted. The father was by no means responsible for the son's profligate living. The boy was making his own choices. But the father knew the son, And in knowing the son, he knew what to do when the son made his request. In fact, it's likely he knew what would happen if he granted his son's request. He loved the younger son, and so he wisely gave him what he asked, knowing it might possibly send the boy off the deep end. I say wisely, and I don't mean that parents facilitating our children's sinful living is inherently wise. It isn't. But the father knew the son had to meet certain hard conditions that he might be saved from his sins. Earthly fathers and mothers cannot know for certain what decisions our children will make with what we provide for them, but our Heavenly Father does. In fact, in ways mysterious to us, our Heavenly Father works out his providence in the lives of our children and us through us, through teachers, through coaches, through employers, through politicians, through nature, through sin and even through spiritual warfare. God's love for his people is wise, which means he acts and providentially arranges all of our circumstances so that by them we are saved from our sins and sanctified for his purposes. The father in the parable loved the son, but in a way that's hard to understand unless we realize the father represents our heavenly father. Hebrews chapter 12 illustrates the nature of the love God has for his people. If you are left, he writes, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, beloved, this is essential. It's the wise love of God that writes the providence of God for his people. In other words, God knows by his eternal, undimmed, omniscient wisdom exactly what is needed for our salvation and our joy that you and I would be made like Christ, changed from one degree of glory to another, requires the wisdom of God that's driven by his love. He loves us and so orders each of our days so that we can attain to the beauty of Christ's image. 
God's love is wise. He sees the beginning and the end. He sees every connection and relation between people and places and events. He knows exactly what to do and when to do it every time. And we do not need to fear these things because each is driven by God's wise love. John writes this, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. If we know God's love in Christ, we do not need to fear what tomorrow holds. If we know God's love in Christ, we do not need to fear powers beyond ours in this world. If we know God's love in Christ, we do not need to fear difficulties that lie ahead of us. Our God and His love for us takes all the sting and the condemnation and the guilt out of our suffering so that all that's left is what's required to make us more like Jesus. To be more like Jesus is God's aim for us because to be like Jesus is to be whole. God's love is wise. It's also watchful. And that's our second point. In order to grow our souls, we must recognize the love of God is watching us. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired workers abound in bread? But I'm here about to perish from famine. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You must make me as one of your hired workers. Well, what did the wise love of God produce? A true sense of his situation. When he came to himself, he was in a a desperate situation, blind to the fact that it was his sin that had put him there, and yet this movement in his soul was real. That movement was unlike anything else that we read in the story of the young man, right? All we knew of him was his arrogance, his presumption, his greed, his profligate living. This was something new, something given to him. It describes the moment when the Spirit of God opened his eyes to see his situation, rebellious, dead to all that is holy and right, estranged from his father and his father's God. In this internal monologue, arising, I will arise, it's equivalent to coming alive from being dead. It's how the father describes him using the same word in verse 24. In other places, this word is translated resurrection. He looks back to his father and his father's home. Interestingly, he uses father three times in these verses, not out of anger, but of of hope. He doesn't really understand the father. As he thinks returning, he'll be treated differently than a son, more like a hired worker, but he does recognize the generosity of his father. With the humility of the tax collector in the temple. You remember that story, right? The publican stood next to the Pharisee, and he was beating his chest, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. With that kind of humility, the young man sees himself. I have sinned against heaven. Is another way of saying, I have sinned against heaven's God. He repented, and he recognized in all his actions, he'd sinned against the Lord, and he rightly planned to admit this to his father. But he also said, I've sinned before you, or in the presence of his father. He recognizes he brazenly treated his father despicably, dishonorably, and then worse, he, he made nothing of himself. And that might have softened the blow for the father, but he forfeited his status as a son through his actions. He received his inheritance, but he squandered it. He left his family home for the pagan land of the Gentiles. He rejected his father's religion and fed the pigs. The only question now is, will he truly return? And what, what will the father do? Good verse 20. And rising, he came to his father. While he was yet at a far distance, his father saw him 
and had compassion. And running, he literally fell upon his neck and he kissed him. Four things here. Rising, he came to his father. Rising again, it's the same word from, what we get, from where we get the word resurrection. His father was watching for him. The father's actions indicated he, he didn't believe his son would be lost in the end, so he watched. He watched for him. A far distance or a long way off would have put the son way outside the village on the road. Indeed, the father wasn't just kind of checking out the window every now and then like we do when we expect house guests. He was on the edge of his field straining to see, is, is that my son? Is that my son? And his response to seeing his son was compassion. It's the same word used to describe the Samaritan's response. The father knows nothing of the son's condition or why he's returning, but none of that determined the father's compassion. True compassion is never alone. It demanded actions of mercy. So what did the father do? He ran to him. A middle-aged, Middle Eastern, wealthy landowner in robes doesn't run. They especially didn't run in public. And run towards a wayward son? The father would have been seen by the townspeople, mocked, shamed, especially when they realized to whom he was running, but he ran. And then he forgives his son without the son saying a word. He fell upon his neck. It's this very explicit display of forgiveness and acceptance. It demonstrated a longing father who just wished to see his son. And the kiss it especially shows the son and us that though the son had abandoned the father, the family, and even the faith, the father held none of that against him. As far as the father was concerned, the son's sins were as far as the east was from the west. Does that sound familiar? In the next few verses, the son does confess to the father, but you might have noticed he's cut short. He wanted to tell the father to hire him, but the father cut him off. And then the father turns to his servants and gives them five commands. Let me read them to you. Verse 21, and the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, hurry, you must bring out the best robe and you must put it on him and you must put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and you must kill it and we will eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and he has been raised. He was lost, and he's found, and they began to celebrate. The father heard the son's confession, and coupled with his return, that was all he needed to hear. Although by his actions, it seems the father had this plan in mind all along. The father had no intention of treating his son in any other way as his son. His response was to make his son's return into his place as family clear. The best robe that was saved for special guests and special occasions. A ring, perhaps the father's own ring. Shoes for his feet because only servants went shoeless. The fattened calf, again, saved for special occasions and special guests. And one family couldn't eat a fattened calf, so the father intended to celebrate widely, just as the one who found the sheep, just as the woman who found the coin, couldn't wait to tell others to come, let's celebrate because what was lost has been found. My son was dead, and he has been raised. He was lost and is found. The son 
went from sin and destitution, which go together, to forgiveness and restoration. Two, two points of application here. First, the son came to himself, or he came to his senses. How do we understand the point Jesus is making there? Well, as I mentioned, nothing in the son thus far would indicate, <clears throat> excuse me, he just suddenly woke up and saw his condition, thought he should go home. No, though his love made him watchful, the limitation of the parable was that the father looked from his land to see his son. Our, our father in heaven has no such limitation. His is a present watchful love over his people at all times and in all places, especially in the far country. The Lord isn't simply present when we obey him, when we worship him, when we live in a manner that's pleasing to him. Our Heavenly Father is always in the far country with his unbelieving sons and daughters, those who've not yet come to faith, and those sons and daughters who are wayward. The watching love of the Heavenly Father is always present for his people to bring them to spiritual life from death or spirit, from spiritual waywardness to wholeness. Beloved, he waits for us. He watches for us. He waits for the very moment when we are most needful of only what he can give, new life, new eyes, new commitments. None of God's people is ever out of reach of God's saving love and of his sanctifying love. I'll say that one more time and then you get to give me an amen. You ready? None of God's people is ever out of reach of God's saving love and of his sanctifying love. Amen. amen. God does not fear the far countries where his people go and make their lives. The wise love of God waits and watches for the moment when it makes what is dead alive and what was wayward to return. Do you feel like there's a far country that even the Lord can't reach? Or to say it differently, a sin the Father won't forgive you in Christ? That what you've done or your children or grandchildren have done is beyond the love of God in Christ? To think so means we've forgotten Paul's words in Romans 8. Let me remind you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What do you think these verses mean? That once we're saved, we're secure in the love of God in Christ? Yes, yes, that's true. But it is also true that nothing will separate the love of God from saving a sinner or reclaiming a saint. Nothing. Nothing. Let's hear it again. Amen. Boy, I needed this this morning. Last night, I 
sinned against my daughter Liberty and my wife. I was definitely not the kind of father that you go, oh yeah, he's like dad only better. No, no, I wasn't that guy. But I am thankful that nothing will separate the love of God from reclaiming a wayward saint. Nothing. The love of God watches and then when it's time, springs forth and makes what was dead alive. Secondly, the watching love of God is generous to his people. One of the probably most significant movements in my own spiritual life was to put down my view that God was a grumpy, stingy sovereign. The watching love of God is generous to his people. I mean, it's kind of an understatement. The father in the parable didn't simply hug and kiss his son and say, let's head back to the house. The father's forgiveness of the son's sins against him is remarkable in and of itself, right? Perhaps the only thing the son could have done that would have been worse was to kill his father before he left. It was terrible. His sins were enormous, and yet the watching father, before the son could open his mouth, was already down the road. Before he could say a thing, he was already on his neck. Forgiveness and acceptance. Upon what basis did the father do this? Was it because the son returned? Was it because the son confessed? No. The father forgave because he loved the son. The obvious, lavish, even ridiculous way the father greeted the son is only a shadow of the riches and rewards in store for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. You think the father in the story's got crazy love. Beloved, Christians now wear the robe of Christ's righteousness. Baptized Christians wear the ring of acceptance into the family of God now. Paul says our feet are shod with the gospel of peace now. The Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slaughtered for us so that we can celebrate at the Lord's table now and at the marriage supper when he returns. Amen? Amen. Beloved, do you see how all the Father in the parable lavished on the Son has been given to each of us who has put our faith in Jesus Christ? and more. We know the generosity of God's watchful love. Listen, we know the generosity of God's watchful love. Why? Not because you've earned it, but because God is love. This message would have been treasured by the tax collectors and sinners for sure. But those like them aren't the only ones who were lost. In order to grow our souls, we have to recognize the love of God is working for us. This last part of the parable Jesus said is directed to the Pharisees and the scribes. They too were lost, but in a different way than the tax collectors and sinners. God's love also took a different form in his interchange in this part of the parable, the father and the oldest son. The religious elite of the day had a hard-hearted entitlement mentality. Their view of the love of God was included a sense of earning and keeping, that it was theirs to earn or theirs to keep based on something they did or who they were. You see, a kind of settled expectation had set in in the heart of the religious elite. They were not alive, but they had the appearance of being alive. They did alive-looking things, like the Pharisee next to the tax collector. You remember that story? God, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Or even the church at Sardis, where Jesus said this, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. 
This is a different kind of lostness, isn't it? The other is easier to spot. Drunkenness, sexual morality, stealing. This is hidden, subtle, yet just as strong. And it is what was affecting the older brother. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he was coming near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the young men, and he inquired into these things. And the young man said to him, because your brother has returned, your father has killed the fattened calf as he has received him back safe and sound. Strangely, the older brother missed seeing the father run out to meet the younger son. It was a public spectacle, but the son missed it. So the servant brought him up to speed on what happened, basically summarizing the father's words. Now keep in mind, the older son is sitting on two-thirds of the value of the land. Remember at the very beginning, the father divided the land between them, divided the value between them. Verse 28, but he, that is the older brother, he was angry and did not wish to go in. But his father, coming out, urged him. But he answered his father saying, look, these many years I've served you and never neglected a command of yours and yet you never gave to me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, the one who wasted your property on prostitutes, comes and you kill a fattened calf for him. But you can hear it. You can hear it. The older son was figuratively in the far country himself. He was physically right outside the home, but that was very telling. His anger proved he might as well have been far, far away. In the son's words, we hear a transactional view of the love of God. He doesn't respectfully address his father. He says, look here. He doesn't affirm the younger boy as his brother, but he calls him this son of yours. He refuses to share the meal, which is a huge statement of scorn and dismissal, a rebuke of the father's hospitality. Cold water on the father's joy. He reminds the father of how upright and obedient he has been. Literally, it reads this way, I have been your slave, and you never neglected any of your, never neglected any of your commands, but this son of yours, the one who wasted your property on prostitutes? I mean, you can hear it. Oh, wait a minute, I did this and this, and you never gave me anything, but this whoring son stole from you, and you gave him everything. One commentator restated it this way. Quote, why is it that recklessness and shamelessness are rewarded with jubilation when responsibility and obedience have received no recognition? He thought the father should love him because of what he's done. And the father should not accept the younger brother because of what he's done. He misunderstood the father and his love. He acted as if the father was stingy and exacting, stern taskmaster that treated his son like a slave. Verse 31, the father said to him, my child, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we must celebrate and be glad because your brother was dead and he lives. He was lost and has been found. The tenderness of the father's response is how he begins. My child, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. He loved the older son. The older son had the opportunity for intimacy with the father all the time, including the father's resources. Because the older son didn't understand the father's love, he didn't understand the father's actions towards the younger son. He was looking for justice. What was most important to the father and to the older son was that a life was saved, 
A family was mended. A relationship was revived. The father's words called the older son to enter into that joy. He called him to drop his work for love mentality and instead receive the blessing of the father's love. Why does our heavenly father love? Because God is love. God is love towards the one who believes he's beyond the reach of God's love. God is love towards the one who believes he's earned the love of God. The father left the meal, another violation of decorum because he was the host. He left to invite his older son in. His love was at work seeking the lost. In this case, the one who does alive looking things, but who in his soul is actually dead. Listen, if you are here and you think that because you are here, God loves you, you're wrong. If you give your money to the church and think that because you do, God loves you, you're wrong. If you're in a life group or you go to Bible study and you think that because you do those things, God loves you, you're wrong. If you don't drink or smoke or curse or go with girls who do and you think that because you don't, God loves you, you're wrong. The older son was a jerk to his father. He violated the commandment to honor his father, but the father's response wasn't judgment, but love, compassion. God loves his people. Why? Because God is love. God puts no conditions upon you in order to love you. He loves because he chooses to love, because love is what God does. Beloved, we cannot out-sin the love of God. Amen? Amen? Neither can we improve or earn his love. He gives freely and abundantly to all who put their faith in Christ. In the far country, literally, or in the far country secretly, there are no obstacles to the love of God in Christ. I need a love that has no conditions. I sin far too easily, and then I look to the Father with transactional eyes thinking, now I'm out, and I do it every morning. You review the day behind you and go, yep, I'm out. Do you know why I'm not out? Because of this. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you belong to him. You're not out because of this. You're not in because you put your faith in Christ, okay? You're in because God is love and he loved you enough to draw you so that you would willingly, joyfully embrace him and embrace his love. Now, if you sent kids to Kids Quest, go embrace your kids and bring them back. <laughs> and brothers and